Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, so let me give you an update where we've been, where we're going here. Uh, Last week... uh, Pilgrim, Christian, uh, and uh, members, uh, faithful and Christian, uh, they've been traveling and they uh, actually, I'm sorry, let me go back even. You had a Christian with going through uh, the Valley uh, sorry, the valley of Humiliation where he met it with Apollyon. They had this kind of spiritual battle that took place. It was uh, very dramatic. And then after surviving that, uh, Christian goes into the Valley of the Shadow of Death, which is, sounds like a really fun place. Uh, and then that was even harder because you had the spiritual warfare where, again, you had these uh, demonic voices, right? And you had these different kinds of temptations uh, that were, uh, were um, a huge challenge for him, but God brought him through. And in the Valley of Hum- uh, Shadow of Death, in, the, uh, in, in front of Christian was Faithful. Faithful was ahead of him, and uh, Christian and Faithful connect. At the, they come out of that valley. And then as they follow along, then they run into Talkative. Remember Talkative last week? And Talkative, again, a, a summary of Talkative. Who wants to take a shot at it? We can say, okay, what's Talkative personify? What is he, remember, this is an allegory. Uh, what does Talkative represent? And just don't say a person who talks. <laughs> so what talks too much? He's a hypocrite, right? Uh, he is the, he is the, uh, the, the professing believer who talks the talk but does not walk the walk, right? And one thing I wanted to repeat about that is that um, I don't want to downplay the importance of knowledge and training and education and learning, okay? Because, again, uh, we're commanded to, by God, again, to grow in the faith, right? And, can, and so uh, I don't want to give this impression, again, is that those, um, a person who's like that um, is not important or undervaluing that. But we're talking about this time, again, with talkative. Uh, he's very impressive in the things he talks about, but there's no heart change. He's not a believer. He doesn't know the Lord, and, and faithful challenges on that. Well, uh, on the little video, our, our high-tech thing here, I was going to do both screens here, but uh, there's still technical difficulties. And so, so uh, this video up here is... Uh, Faithful and Christian, they are they meet evangelists. So evangelists kind of he's up, does these cameos that shows up here, and uh, in this uh, version of Pilgrim's Progress, this is the one that came out in the theaters a year or two ago. All right, um, and so uh, evangelist is going to have a word with them and say, okay, okay, you've survived, you've come through this far, I'm very proud of you, but now you're going to face something new. All right, so we will go and play that, and then we'll kind of jump into what that is. Let's get the volume up on this. There we go. Severe, more difficult hardships. Hardships from which you might not escape. Meaning? You will soon come to a tower where you will be arrested. Arrested? And one or both of you will seal your testimony with blood. by the evil Apollyon on the very path that leads to the celestial city. The town 
so fat that it never ends. And in it, you'll encounter everything that tempts a human heart. Through this town, you must go. Be overly confident and heed to this warning. Settle it in your heart what you will do before you enter the town. Many have fallen who walked in with one eye on eternity and the other on the present. to obtain, you do not sell here. That, sir, is impossible. What is the meaning of this disruption? These strange strangers insist that what they need is not available here. And as a result, they have disrupted our fair. Well then, to the judge. They won't buy anything. They're doing nothing. Well, by doing nothing, you have interrupted our fair. There's only one thing to do. Call the jury. Jury! All present. Right. Do we have the witnesses? Envy and gain glory. Do you know these prisoners? Yes, at least 15 minutes. And what do you hold against them? They said that what they wanted, we did not have. And what could that possibly be? Peace, joy, love, unselfishness, patience, contentment, and a crown that never fades away, among other things. We sell that. <laughs> for they can only be obtained by the king who gives them to all who desire them. Though they come not at the price of any coin, but of the surrender of the heart to his better ways. <clears throat> you 
have proof that these uh, wonderful things even exist? By the king's grace. Well then, show them to us. They are not such things as you can hold in your hand. But are most excellent things which are held in the heart and are the most valuable during hardships. For it is then that their worth is most evident. Well then, may I suggest just that, my lord? That we may see what we are so missing out on? Suggest what? Why, hardships, of course. Hardships? Hardships? Cruelty! Approach the bench! Uh, what are you thinking? The fair has been disrupted. Is that not cause enough? I am ready for judgment. But not the townspeople. What are you... Okay, I'm going to stop it there. Now, this is an adaption. Uh, again, it was kind of uh, set up for non-Christians, and so it's uh, kind of very broad. And we're going to focus exactly what the text in the book talks about here. So let's talk about Vanity Fair. And usually when we say Vanity Fair, uh, again, there's a magazine that came out in the, I think, what was the year on that? That was uh, in 1983, uh, which is ironic, by the way, just that there's actually a book that celebrates or Vanity Fair, which everything this, this, the culture and society thinks is valuable and worthwhile is actually uh, the opposite, right? Um, there's actually, there's been novels about this and there's been movies and so on, but let's look at the text in the very top here. It says here, I saw in my dream that when Christian and faithful had left the wilderness, they, soon saw, they saw a town ahead of them named Vanity. At that town, there was a fair called Vanity Fair and it's kept open all year long. It bears the name Vanity Fair because the town and where it's, where it's held is lighter than vanity, and also because all that is sold there is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And again, we've, we've heard this phrase, we've heard the term before, and, and so some verses that tie into the word vanity, the, the meaning of the word vanity, you have Isaiah 40, verse 17. Um, all the nations are as nothing before him, they're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaninglessness and meaningless. Uh, you have, of course, from Ecclesiastes, when you begin where this is pulled from. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity is all is vanity. And it goes on, uh, repeating that same line uh, in verse 14. You have 2.11. Uh, you have uh, Ecclesiastes 2.17. And then you finally you have Ecclesiastes 11.8, where it says, Indeed, if a man shall live many years, let him rejoice in all, in all of them, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. For everything that is to come will be futility. And so again, you think of the word vanity, the word futility, something that's meaningless, uh, empty, that kind of thing. Uh, George Cleaver, he's a commentator on Pilgrim's Progress. I love his, kind of his description of Vanity Fair. He says, Vanity Fair is the city of destruction in its gala dress, in its most seductive, sensual allurements. It is this world in miniature with its various temptations. It's Satan's theme park and the world of, car of, of carnal dream. And so, again, um, it's interesting with Vanity Fair, depending on which version you look at. In this case here, it's a carnival. It's kind of like a, you know, you get that kind of, if you've ever been to a carnival, it's kind of that theme there. Uh, if you've ever been to a Renaissance fair, think of Scarborough fair, fair, right? It's very much historical in that sense there, where uh, whether it's the Middle Ages and, and that idea of a place where it's a market, right? It's a market to market. And in that market, they're selling stuff, 
right? And so this is the ultimate market. This is Canton on steroids. No, I can't use Canton because a Christian place, I guess. No, okay, so um, yeah, so first Mondays. And so this case here, this is a place where it's a temptation. And so remember with evangelist that he warns both Christian and faithful, you have to take care because you have to go through Vanity Fair. In order to get to the celestial city, you've got to go through it. Right, and so the point here, of course, by way of a, a allegory, is that we are in Vanity Fair. Okay, we are in Vanity Fair right now. Okay, we are on the path and to the celestial city, and right now we're in Vanity Fair. And as we kind of go through all these things, hopefully you're gonna connect with this stuff. Uh, for some reason, though, it seems like usually with this um, season of Christmas, and I'm not dogging Christmas. I love Christmas as far as the Christian understanding <coughs> of Christmas. But the consumerism of Christmas, every year it seems like it's gotten bigger and bigger and more and more crass and more, I mean, the, the, the commercials alone drive me absolutely nuts, okay, about what's the true meaning of Christmas and it's buying a new car, or, you know, or going on some cruise or something like that. No. So moving on, let's talk about um, kind of elaborating a little bit more about what is Vanity Fair. Its origin on page two of your outline mentions that you have multiple uh Old Testament characters who have on the this pilgrimage, they mentioned Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and Daniel are walking on a path to the celestial city. And then on this path, there was a village or a town. And then you have in point B, you have Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion decide to set up a fair. Okay, uh, in this this town where all sorts of vanity would could be sold all year long. They designed a most subtle snare in which travelers would be permanently detained and lose sight of the King's Highway. Now, that little line there is really, really super important about the intent of Vanity Fair. It's satanic. Okay, it's satanic. There is, again, uh, in this world that we live in, there is a, the, there's the world. Okay, there's that satanic operating system, again, that, again, a Satan is using. And the point is, is it's a design to a most subtle snare. And it's interesting, too, is that Satan has different strategies. And so we saw, for example, with Apollyon, it was that straight-out uh, kind of the dramatic spiritual warfare kind of thing. And now Satan is using now what we may say call the soft touch. In other words, if he can't uh, uh, make you afraid, if he can't destroy you, then he's going to seduce you. Right? It's kind of like going back to the book of Numbers. I mean, you remember the, the people of Israel, uh, and they call... Uh, Balak calls Balaam the prophet for hire. Remember that? Okay. To curse Israel. And every time, it's a great story, right? And the whole thing, every time uh, ba uh, Balaam uh, tries to curse Israel, he, God says, I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you, right? And Balak gets really, really upset about this, right? He says, you failed me, all right? And then uh, Balaam, the prophet for hire, says, well, I've got another strategy. And if I can't curse them, then what you do is you have the, the ladies of Moab go on down all right, and then to basically invite the, 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 the Israelites to, the, to false worship, you know, to idolatry, uh, to uh, immoral worship and things like that. Same idea, some kind of subtle snare. Uh, and it's interesting, too, where travelers would be permanently detained. All right, so this idea is that and these pilgrims are on their way and they get sidetracked. All right? And so here's by way of analogy again is that have you, know, have, you, know, have you been sidetracked? <coughs> In other words, again, have you been detained? Have you been on this path and you've been walking with the Lord and something <laughs> somehow has captured your attention, has gotten your, your heart, your emotions, your affections uh, wrapped up in it, and then again, Jesus kind of gets it on the wayside, right? And so you have here uh, some descriptions besides this. Number one, it's continuous. 
Um, it lasts all year long. And by way of analogy, again, is that temptations are, uh, are all around us all the time. We're, even though we're in this Christmas season right now, it only lasts for, well, since 4th of July. No. Uh, um, it seems like that, right? They keep making it longer and longer, right? Um, but the point is it's only for a time. But this idea, again, with um, Vanity Fair and the temptations and the seductions of that are all the time. They're all the time. They never let up whether you're a child or whether you're an older person. Uh, those, uh, th that strategy is always going to be around. And I also like, too, that the fair is international. And, and Bunyan's going to talk about this, about there's different rows, there's different streets, with, uh, and they're identified by their countries, right? So you've got the Portuguese and the Spanish and the German. You've got all the different European countries at that time. And they all have their unique things they're selling. Okay, the unique things they're selling here. Um, I'm sorry, I need to go back. I, I missed skip point B here. Uh, the fair is corrupt. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. The point, of course, is that Vanity Fair, it's a bad place. Okay, what it's selling is, again, it's <coughs> typically sinful, all right? So the way they're described is that it's tainted by sinful passions. It's given place to many foolish and profane occupations. Um, you got uh, cheats and games and plays and fools and knaves and rogues and basically murder and idolatry and you name it. Okay, everything that the world represents from the sinful uh, perspective is found in Vanity Fair. Okay, that's kind of the, the the main thing that they're selling, and that's why you saw in the little video there it was kind of sanitized there, but because the only thing you really saw bad was uh, a lady who looked like a clown, and then you have some guy selling alcohol, and you know, and they have the the roller coaster. I don't know why that's sinful, but you know, you get the idea. Is there somehow again things the world's offering uh, that's typically we would understand it to be um, wrong and, and uh, a violation of God's law? Now the international part I already meant, mentioned it as well, but what's interesting is that if we modernize this a little bit, if we had Vanity Fair and you had the American sector, okay, the American uh, row or street, okay. Um, you know, what do you think, again, that would be representative of that? Because, again, a lot of times we talk about America exports its culture, its consumerism, its ideals around the world. I don't know if you knew that or not. America has a lot of influence, you know, in the, in the, the world markets and different. We try to sell stuff and things like that. And it used to be, for example, that America, what it exported would be actually good things, right? You could argue, you know, uh, there'd be positive things. But popular culture, if like you, if you travel and go to a, another country and you just turn the TV set on or, if they have, yeah, or watch uh, entertainment, which is American-made, a lot of times you see the best America has to offer. And what's the best America has to offer? I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift. Well, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any Taylor Swift fans out there? I'm. I'm just saying. Yeah. Huh? Reality, shows. reality shows. Thank you, Elaine. That's right. I was having a reality because yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's no reality. There's no reality. Yeah, the bane of our, yeah, is that we are actually, you know, the Kardashians are kind of like the high point of American culture uh, or something like that, right? What else? In terms of culture, I would say a sense of entitlement. Okay, entitlement. Okay. Social media. Social media. Right. And so there's all of these things that uh, makes America operate tick uh, that we take, that we're surrounded by all the time that we not only export, then things are exported to us as well. But this is what's being sold. It's being what's being sold, and people are buying it, right? And especially if you're not a Christian, that's your, your, that's your coin. 
Okay, that's what you're normally, again, used to and you want, you pursue. It gives your life definition and meaning and purpose and so on. But for a believer, you know, you recognize this stuff is fool's gold, right? You recognize, again, this stuff that the world's selling is vanity. It's, it's empty. It's useless. It's futile. And we have to resist those kind of things. And then you have also in point D here, the, the, the fair is bountiful. Uh, it's full of delights and pleasures. When you read Bunyan's description, you'll notice that not all the things provided in the fair are, are in themselves bad. Uh, there's, there are, some are, but others are go God's good gifts. Uh, Bunyan's going to mention houses, lands, trades, wives, husbands, children, <coughs> souls, and bodies, among the other, the other good things. Okay, and so that was interesting when you read uh, Vanity Fair when you, uh, in the book, is there's, there's a lot of bad stuff, but then there's like good stuff mixed in. All right, and so when I first read that, I thought, hmm, is he saying, is Bunyan saying like wives are bad or husbands are bad or children are bad or jobs are bad? And this is a, it's not a rhetorical question. Um, what do you think? Yeah, there we go. That's right. Okay, so this is the whole, and that's why I have on the line there that um, Anything, even good things, can be turned into an idol and become bad when it becomes more important and more viable to us than Christ. Right? And we already, already kind of know this, but it is, there is a challenge there. All right? uh, even good things can be, become twisted and can be, uh, uh, take on uh, more of an importance than they should. Now, you have a number of verses that talk, again, about the world in connection with Vanity Fair. A lot of you are familiar with this. You have 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world. Okay, and of course, it's top of the world system, nor the things in the world. Well, what is the things? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's uh, 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. You also have James 1, 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our, of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in distress, and to keep one oneself unstained by the world. We kind of put a lot of emphasis on the first part about orphans and widows, okay? But with the second part of that is, like to me, like a huge challenge, too, to keep oneself unstained. Unstained. Because, again, as we go through this world and we're in Vanity Fair, we get stained, you know, we get, we, we get touched by a lot of different uh, things that are um, not good. You also have here in James 4, 4, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You also have Romans 12, 2, which you're, you're familiar with as well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then you have uh, from the Proverbs and Psalms very, uh, a lot of uh, verses that tie, same tie, tie into this as well. One, thing I really, one definition I really like is from David Wells. And David Wells says, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes the wrong seem normal. Okay, and again, I encourage you to go back and read that again. Um, I love, again, this whole idea about at its center is our fallen human perspective, which displaces God. God has no place in it. It's diametrically opposed to God and to his, uh, his reign, his truth in the world. And then it has this little flip there. It makes sin look normal, right? And so that's really when we talk about the world and Vanity Fair and our culture, that's where we're at right now, okay? That we call 
um, evil good, right, and good evil, right? And so that's the message we're hearing all the time that's being sold all the time again is that things that are a, a, an abomination to God, an offense to God, um, uh, that those things are being saved that they're not. Okay, those things are actually a good thing, and those things are, should be honored, or those things should be pursued. Those things are actually valuable. And God says, if you read God's word, God's very clear on these things. They're not. Okay, and this is my point here is that if we're going to be faithful Christians going through Vanity Fair, it's going to cause a problem. Okay, it's going to cause a problem. You also have here from uh, Charles Spurgeon, you have a morning and evening, some of you use the devotion from Spurgeon, right? I know you guys do. Um, he, Spurgeon will say, here we have two great lessons, what to depreciate and what to supplicate. The happiest state of a Christian is the holiest state. As there is the most heat nearest to the sun, so there is the most happiness nearest to Christ. No Christian enjoys comfort when his eyes are fixed on vanity. He finds no satisfaction unless his soul is quickened in the ways of God. The world may win happiness elsewhere, but he, the Christian, cannot. I do not blame ungodly men for rushing to their pleasures. Why should I? Let them have their fill. That is all they have to enjoy. A converted wife who's, who despaired of her husband will always be very kind to him, for she said, I fear this is the only world in which he will be happy, and therefore I have made my, made my mind to make him happy as I can. Christians must seek their delights in a higher sphere than the insipid frivolities, there's our, our uh, uh, vanity there, uh, or sinful enjoyments of the world. Vain pursuits are dangerous to renewed souls. We have heard a philosopher who, while he looked up to the stars, fell into a pit. But how deeply do they fall who look down? Their fall is fatal. No Christian is safe when his soul is slothful and his God is far from him. Every Christian is always safe to the great matter of his standing in Christ, but he is not safe in regards to his experience in holiness and communion with Jesus in this life. Satan does, does not often attack a Christian who is living near to God. It is when the Christian departs from his God, becomes spiritually starved, and endeavors to feed on vanities that the devil discovers his vantage hour. He may sometimes stand foot to foot with the child of God who is active in his master's service, but the battle is generally short. He who slips as he goes down into the valley of humiliation, every time he takes a false step, invites Apollyon to assail him, oh, for grace to walk humbly with our God. And, you've, and you, again, all, again, when you read devotionals like this, and you read theology, you read the scriptures and so on and so forth, they're all saying the same thing over and over again, all right? That vanity fair is, is a danger. Vanity fair is a danger. <coughs> Okay, and re and this is connected when we talk about the world, the worldliness, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the battle we have against the world, the flesh and the devil. And we focus a lot of times on the flesh, which is appropriate, and maybe sometimes the devil, maybe unless you're a charismatic or something like that. You know, we don't talk a lot about Satan, but the world we struggle with a lot because we you know to be in the world but not of the world, right? And I, you've probably heard that forever. Okay, to be in the world but not of the world, but it's hard, right? It's hard. But we have to. Um, you also have here, too, a quote uh, here from C.S. Lewis. I love this quote. Uh, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. 
And I love that again the, the imagery there. But again, Lewis is exactly right. We're half-hearted creatures. You know, again, that we cannot find our contentment, our satisfaction, uh, whatever the world's selling. Basically, I, I use that term "fool's gold" a lot. If you know what fool's gold is, right? It's nice and shiny, but it's worthless. All right. And so again, whatever Satan's selling, whatever the world's selling, again, we recognize it to be again. It will never bring satisfaction or contentment or what God God's promising to give us. And then finally, we have I have a quote here from Thomas Chalmers uh, from a book he's written called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he says, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, and that's so irre- irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. We know of no other way in which to keep the love of the world out of the heart than to keep our, in our hearts the love of God, and no other way in which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up in, the, in our most holy faith. Amen. You know, I love that idea again. It's because, again, it's not a, you know, a nature, nature, nature abhors a vacuum. All right, and the point, of course, is that in order to not love the world, the love of God has to replace it. The love of God has to overwhelm it. The love of God has to extinguish that. All right, and that's what again was with uh, these pilgrims that they're going to be facing here. Now, um, the, the, all pilgrims follow the steps of the Lord in the the, the book itself. In Pilgrim's Progress, it talks about that Jesus went through the, the Vanity Fair, uh, and it's really it's interesting is that you know, you, this is kind of the wilderness temptation. Remember, you know, sort of the wilderness temptation of Matthew 4 uh, and where Satan offers Jesus, you know, shortcuts, right? Offers him bread because he's been fasting for 40 days. Then offers him all the kingdoms of, of the earth, right? Remember that? Um, and Jesus keeps saying no. Now, we've quoted scripture, keeps saying no to Satan. And these pilgrims are going to have to do kind of follow the, the same path. And point B on page 4 here, in this world we will indeed face trials and temptations, but we have a Savior who has defeated sin and death. His word gives us comfort. And, of course, you have John chapter 16, where Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So what's the reaction? Okay, so you can imagine these two guys that go into the city. You saw a little bit on the video here. And... Um, the, uh, the minute they go in there, they're potential customers, right? They're potential customers. So are we. We're potential customers, all right? Uh, especially in America. And uh, so they go into there, and the, all of a sudden you have almost like if you've ever been like a used car salesman, you know, a parking lot, you know, and you go on the parking lot, and all these, these we can't say this anymore because there's no cars anymore. Um, there used to be, when there used to be these things called uh, car lots, and uh, you go to buy a car, and then all these salesmen come out of nowhere, right, trying to sell you something. Okay, okay, I, there's, that still works a little bit. All right, same idea here. This, these pilgrims, as I said, had to go through this fair, and so they did. And behold, as they entered the fair, all the people in the fair were perplexed, and the town itself was in a hubbub. I like that word, hubbub. And, and that for several reasons. Number one, they, did, they noticed their unusual clothing. First, the pilgrims were clothed differently than any who traded in that fair. The people of the fair therefore stared at them, some said they were fools, some said they were deranged, and some said they were eccentric men. Okay, and so these were distinctive. That these, again, these, uh, the, the pilgrims were dressed differently, but again, this is allegorical and so on. And so their distinctive dress is that their garment perfectly tailored for sinners, uh, sorry, let me read it again. Their distinctive dress for the pilgrims is that their garment is perfectly tailored for sinners, namely Jesus' imputed righteousness, which was freely received at the place of deliverance. Their fashion consciousness 
focuses on conformity to godliness rather than the current carnal apparel. Okay, so just keep this in mind here about, again, is that um, not only is it, again, God saves us and he gives us Christ-imputed righteousness, but again, the, that there's godliness. Again, again, the way that when God is sanctifying us, he's conforming us to the image of Christ, that we look differently than the world, right? Um, and, of course, the most obvious by, by, by practicality is about the way that we dress, the way that we dress. I know this is controversial. I mean, I deal with teenagers all the time, right? And we get in this whole discussion about clothing, okay? And you think, like, well, that's just, you know, that seems like that's kind of a minor thing. But it's not a minor thing because, again, uh, the clothing that you wear says something about you. Right, the clothing that you wear says something about you, right? And I could just use, like, and there's a whole discussion about this, but even the word modesty, right? Because it used to be, again, that that was uh, common sense. It was common sense, okay? And now there's a lack of modesty, a major lack of modesty, right? And yet people think, well, this is me expressing my individualism. This is my authentic self. This is me doing, my, doing me, right? And who are you to somehow criticize or say this is improper, right? For these Christians, again, uh, they were, their, their heart, again, was changed by Christ. And again, they're, they're, uh, there was a difference about them. They were distinctive, okay? So it wasn't just righteousness, but also godliness um, that basically drew attention. People saw a difference there. Also, their speech. Secondly, as they wondered at their peril, just as they were bewildered at their speech, for few can understand what, the, what these pilgrims said. The pilgrims naturally spoke the, the language of Canaan. But those who kept the fair were men of the world, so that at, uh, from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed like to be like barbarians to each other, right? And you say world history, if you ever said the Greeks, right? The Greeks excused uh, him as being superior because they spoke Greek, right? <coughs> and anybody else who didn't speak Greek, you're a barbarian, it's bar, 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 bar. Okay, anyway, all right, you get the idea here. But their conversation for, uh, was noticeably different than that of the townspeople. They were not enticed by the latest gossip or lured by profane humor. They speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. They speak of spiritual things, the language of Canaan, and those of the fair cannot understand them. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 would tie into this. For the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can they know him because they are spiritually discerned. You also have 1 John 4 uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right? So again, the difference, uh, both Christian and faithful, stand out. They stand out. They stand out in their godliness and their holiness. They stand out in the way they speak. All right? And, and I'll bring this up because, the, you know, it's the same idea today. We should be, a, we should be a whole, to be holy is to be separate, is to be different. Right? And so, unfortunately, a lot of times we're in the world and people can't tell any difference about us at all. They can't tell, okay, and so, and that's a problem. And then the final thing here, they don't want to buy anything. The pilgrims don't want to buy anything. So the pilgrims were not interested in what the town had to offer. They were not tempted by temporary and fleeting pleasures. They refused to look at the wares displayed for sale. And one of the verses that's mentioned in Pilgrim Progress is uh, uh, Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. And it's interesting that uh, turn away your eyes. Uh, I will not look on any worthless things. Talked about in the Psalms. Uh, in the, the story, um, it seems like both the, both the pilgrims are actually guarding their eyes. 
that they're actually, as they're walking through, they're actually kind of doing this thing here, and they're trying to be enticed by, you know, people are shoving stuff in their face or saying, come and come to my booth, that kind of thing. And they're deliberately working really, really hard to not be seduced by those things. They're guarding their eyes. Um, and then he says here, the, thirdly, that which uh, greatly disturbed the peddlers was that the pilgrims did not value their wares. They did not desire so much as to look upon them. If the pilgrims were called upon to buy their merchandise, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and looking upwards, signifying that their desires and concerns were in heaven. And then finally you have the kind of the catchphrase, which I really, really like. They, they keep uh, the, 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 the sellers basically getting exasperated and they say, why won't you buy anything? What, what will you buy? Okay, and this is my, the line I love, that they both say, we buy the truth. We buy the truth. We don't want any of your garbage. We don't want any of your stuff. Uh, whatever you have to sell us, uh, we recognize as being vanity, being worthless, being of the world, being that which would corrupt us. We don't want any of it. Zero, nada. Okay? And the reason I'm kind of being aggressive in, about this is because I'm an aggressive person anyway. But um, the point is, is that you know, there's this dissatisfaction with the things of this world. Hopefully as a Christian, the longer that you live, you, you can see it. Right? You can see the garbage. You can see the stuff, again, that, 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 that's, that permeates the world system. And you say, you know, I want none of it. I don't want to be touched by it. I don't want to be stained by it. I don't want to be entangled by it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I only want to buy the truth. And, of course, ironically is that we don't have to buy the truth, right? It's a, it's a free gift, right? Well, that's not going to go over very well with these guys. Um, and that's where we're going to get to the next page here. Persecution. Now, you'd think, again, because uh, both uh, Pilgrim and Faithful, they just want to go through the fair. They don't want to offend. I say they want to offend. They don't want, they're not causing any problems. Okay? It's not like they're going and saying, let's burn this place down, you know, hitting people in the face you know, for Jesus' sake, or something like that. Okay? They're just basically they're just, they're just trying to navigate uh, all these people and so on, and the people are getting agitated. They're getting really ticked off at, at both these guys. All right? So it says, at that, the men of the fair took occasion to despise the pilgrims all the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachably, and some calling upon others to smite them. At last, things came to a hubbub, here's our word again, and a great stir in this fair, insomuch that everything was in disorder. So a word soon was brought to the lord of the fair, or the governor, who quickly came down and delegated some of the most luckily trusty, trust, trusting friends to take these pilgrims who had disturbed the fair and so on. Now, uh, so get in your mind again is that um, it's gotten to a point where the, the governor of the, the, of the fair basically said he's, um, there's almost a riot kind of breaking out. And they say, okay, he has to intervene. And so he goes to figure out what's going on here. He brings some, some deputies with him, and they want to know who these two guys are, all right? And um, so they, the two guys, uh, the, both the pilgrims say, okay, this is three things about us. Um, we're strangers to this world. We're strangers to this world. We're going to our own country, and we've given you no cause for abuse, right? We've done nothing again uh, that should, again, cause you to in any way uh, persecute us or harm us. Well, what happens next is that they, the, the governor says, well, I really don't care. I can see there's something about you. You're obviously troublemakers. And they begin to beat them, okay, beat them. In fact, in the story in Vanity Fair, they get beaten quite a few, quite a bit. It's like, in fact, the pilgrims get beaten up a lot. If you want to get to, to Downing Castle, you know, it's just like they get beaten a lot, okay? Um, but in this case here, they're not only beaten, but they're humiliated. Uh, they're put into their, they're, they take dirt and they smear them all over them. They, they take their clothes off. They put them in an iron cage and they're put in based on display, 
okay? And they're, they're mocked, okay? And so what I like in the next point here is though, Christian and faith will respond with meekness and patience, which further enrages their opponents, right? So I, I think it's an interesting dynamic here is that when you read through Vanity Fair, that the Christians never retaliate, okay? They, they will defend themselves in the trial, but they'll be beaten, spit upon, humiliated, mocked, uh, hit, I mean, just whatever you could think about with people taking out their anger upon them, and they take it, and they respond not in kind, but they bless. When they're being cursed, they bless, right? When um, the, their demeanor was such a way where it was a witness. And, and the reason I bring this up, again, is I, I'm, uh, I know Jesus talks about this. Jesus talks about, again, when you're being persecuted, how you're to respond. But we don't talk a lot about that. Because obviously, we, a lot of times we're not in this situation, but Christians have been in church history. And in this case here, this is, again, biblical. And it, and it reminds me again is that if that time comes, I, mean, I shouldn't say if, I, mean, I say when that time comes, when that time comes, being prepared in advance, how by God's grace, by the Spirit of God, will I respond? Because my instinct is, being American, and me and my, uh, a creature of my culture, is to retaliate, all right? Is if someone attacks me, someone persecutes me, someone hurts me, okay, I want to hit him back. Or I want to somehow do something about that. Again, it's interesting, again, is that, you know, uh, in this example, Jesus' example, um, again, this, this, um, this, this witness, again, enduring uh, this type of a, a punishment. Now, uh, it only makes people mad. Uh, it mentions here that in, in the crowd, some people are watching uh, what these guys, how the Christian and faithful are responding, and they become sympathetic. Yeah. I like the phrase, I, I got it off the here. I never picked it up reading a book, but they said it on this video here. As they're going in, evangelist says, set your mind to what you shall do. Yeah. And that's so important. you got to mentally and spiritually prepare for yeah. these battles. And, and sometimes it's, it's a, a daily battle. Just, right. You know, something you know is going to happen at work. You're going to go to bed. You're going to be tempted for things. It's just you have to always be doing that, preparing mentally and spiritually for battles you know are going to come. Right. And I think we underestimate the, the, the power of that witness. I mean, and like you said, just in real life, everyday things, because the natural tendency is that someone's hurt me, and I'm going to hurt them back. Right. Um, I'm going to. Uh, I'm being attacked, or I'm, I'm something's unjust, and I have to somehow vindicate myself. Right, and again, but these guys here. And it's interesting is that by doing this, others are watching in the crowd, and they're starting to get, they're starting to sympathize with them, which makes it all the worse because those who are angry and those who want to kill them see what's happening, and they say we've got to do something because these guys are actually disrupting the fair even more. Right. So. Um, the goes on to say here is that uh, on page eight, they're thrown in the cage. We already talked about that, and. Um, we go on to the formal trial. Okay, so this is point six in the outline. So um, I was going to say something too. I can't remember what I was just going to say. Um, oh man, I hate that. Okay, um, on point six, they're brought before the judge. Now the judge is named Lord Hategood. Lord Hategood, right? Hategood. In fact, the judge uh, in Pilgrim's Progress is most scholars believe this is modeled after the judge who um, who uh, went after Bunyan. Okay. And so there's actually two judges in particular, but this is during the, the, the Stuart dynasty, or the, the monarchy, which was persecuting uh, the dissenters, all right? And Lord Haygood, uh, in fact, the guy's name was uh, uh, George Jeffers, 
George Jeffers, he was like notoriously bad judge. He was abusive. He was a villain. In fact, you ever get a chance to read about Richard Baxter? Uh, Baxter was brought in before Lord Hategood, essentially. And it's a great story where pretty much the minute that Baxter, Baxter's demeanor, all right, his reputation is a peacemaker. All right, he's a Puritan peacemaker, which is a rare trait, by the way. And so um, the, um, and so uh, basically, uh, Lord Hega basically says, to, he said, you're a villain. Okay, you're, you're an insurrectionist. You're, you, you're, uh, you're causing division. And uh, Richard Baxter calls him a villain, calls him like a blockhead or something like that. It was just like really just like interesting, like he kind of reprimands the, the judge. And the, this judge was going to, was going to kill Baxter. He's going to basically say, we're going to string you up. And then the other judge is basically, you need to calm down and stop being a bad judge, and then they have to do something else. Same thing with, with, uh, with Bunyan, is that when Bunyan was first brought in, they said, okay, we're going to give you three months in prison. After the three months, we'll bring you back, and if you, just, if you choose to join the Church of England or go to, go to the services and stop preaching, all's great, all's good. But if you don't, we're going to send you into exile. All right? And so that was, again, a common theme, and that would be include him, his family, the whole bit. And the idea with exile is that you can't come back. And if we find you coming back, um, we're going to string you up. Right? So these judges are all just the worst judges in the world. Their Lord hate good gives you an idea about, you know, they hate what is good, right? And so uh, he comes in the trial here, and you can kind of go on page 9 here at the top. Um, Christian and faithful are described as, in the indictment as enemies, as servers of the peace and lawbreakers. They're accused of dividing the town, swaying some to accept their views, and speaking against the established traditions and laws of the fair. Only faithful answers the charges of the indictment. He tries to make clear that he only desires what is right for the glory of God and for the good of the town. And by the way, I remember now I was going to think about um, when evangelist tells them uh, earlier on, almost like a prophecy, like one of you is going to die or maybe both you are going to die. It's interesting when you go through the story, they're almost both competing with each other. Like, I really wish it's me. Like, maybe I'm going to be the one that's going to go to the Celestial City first. Because, you know, they want to get to Celestial City. And so as they're going through persecution, they're, they're both secretly wishing, like, I'm sure hope I'm going to be the one that's going to be tortured and killed. And it was like, all right. <laughs> it's a little different, all right? Yeah. So Faithful is going to be the spokesman. He's in this trial. He's going to be the one who's going to defend both of them here. And he will say, um, Faithful is going to say, in his defense, he is not set against the town or its people, but their souls are of value. Right? Their souls are of value. Again, he's not saying, again, uh, and that's very, very clear. He's trying to be an evangelist. He's trying to share the gospel because he does care about the people. Um, he is only set against that which is opposed to him who is higher than the highest. It's rather to obey God than men. And then secondly, or thirdly, he says, he did not come to bring trouble or disturb disturbance to the town. He is a man of peace. And then uh, finally, he did, not, he did come speaking the truth. He only spoke God's word. So again, he's very, very clear here about, again, that... Um, that he's going to tell you as, he, as they're standing in defense that, it, that he will only say what God wants him to say uh, to the glory of God, uh, to the gospel, and it, he's not trying to deliberately cause trouble or division in the city. Well, what they do is they bring in uh, witnesses, witnesses. And you saw a little bit on the video, all right? These witnesses are all rigged, okay? It's a kangaroo court type of situation. The, the one little lady that came up first, said, I've known this guy for 15 minutes. I know all about him, apparently, okay? Mm -hmm. So all these witnesses have no acquaintance really whatsoever. They're, they're lying there, okay? And the three that are mentioned, you have envy, superstition, and pick think. Pick think, all right? Pick, say that fast three times, all right? Um, so I'll end with envy. He goes first here. So the pilgrims were gaining a hearing in the town. Though few were convinced by their message, a growing number were curious. 
Those who hold influence in the town were alarmed by the attention and sympathy given to the pilgrims. They wanted Christian and faithful silenced. Their envy gave rise to persecution. Envy rises from covetousness in the heart, is a discontent at seeing the success or prosperity of another. It is a longing to attain the reward or status of another. It was envy that played a role in, this, uh, played a role in Jesus' sufferings. And they, met, they mentioned in particular Matthew 27, 17 through 18. Uh, Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, what, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Right? And so this envy, this one character uh, says again that he knows about these guys, and I have to stop here till next week. All right, you guys have blessed lords.